Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the second President's Lecture this year, which will be given uh, by Professor Sean Wallens from the Department of History, someone who, if you know him, know that he can as easily talk about American history as he can about Bob Dylan. And we could indeed even have a vote as to which <laughs> lecture you would like to hear, but I'm afraid we've all, it's already been decided. Um, the, for those of you who are faithful attendees of these lectures, you will know that um, they were created 10 years ago to give our campus an opportunity to hear the great scholars that are members of our own faculty. Uh, it struck me at the time as a great shame that we have so many opportunities to hear from people who come all, from all over the world to talk about their work, but too seldom did we have opportunities to hear the extraordinary work that is going on right here in Princeton. And so these lectures are really intended to fill that uh, hole in our programs. Uh, this afternoon, I know we are going to uh, hear a sparkling lecture. And to introduce uh, our speaker, we have a professor and chair of the Department of History, William Jordan, who is uh, a medieval historian and a softball player extraordinaire. <laughs> Bill. Um, welcome, all of you. Uh, Sean Wilentz uh, came to Princeton as a beginning assistant professor in 1979-80, uh, the latter date being the year he received his PhD. I uh, actually had the distinct pleasure of serving on the search committee that hired him. Um, Sean's a student of U.S. social and political history, especially in the early national period, but what one discovers even in casual conversation is that his interests are much wider thematically, chronologically, and spatially. I can remember one time, he does not know this story, but I can remember one time when the great Yale historian, C. Van Woodward, who was on the History Department's Advisory Council here, was uh, commending one of our recent appointments in American history, especially the fact that the person we had hired was not narrowly focused on his own specialty. However, in the same sentence, he reminded us that as good as this person was, he did not have another recent hire's command in this regard. And he was referring to Sean Wilentz, whom he mentioned by name, and who was, for Woodward, a kind of exemplar of what a genuinely well-rounded young American historian should aspire to. Sean studied at Columbia, Balliol College, Oxford, and Yale before taking up his position here at Princeton. His first book was Chance Democratic, which appeared in 1984 and which won a slew of prizes, including the Albert J. Beveridge Award of the American Historical Association, and the Frederick Jackson Turner Award of the Organization of American Historians. The book explores artisan life and the formation of the working class in New York City. It excavates, as it were, the politics and political thought of those who commanded the loyalties of these groups and those who held them, ideologically, at arm's length. It's beautifully written and remains one of the best first books of any historian in our history department here or in any history department anywhere, which explains why it was republished with a new preface in a 20th anniversary edition. His next book took him to the sectarian cauldron of the early nation. When new religions were being born, it seems monthly, with new prophets and messiahs. Now, most of these had quick deaths and no resurrections. 
some lingered longer and some are still with us. In the Kingdom of Matthias of 1994, Sean and his co-author, Paul Johnson, did another remarkable archival excavation of a religious cult that arose in New York City in the 1830s. Like so many of these cults, they pressed against the conventional virtues, alienating therefore not just religious conservatives, but even relatively liberal moralists. At the same time, divided and different as they were one from another, the group spoke with hope or millenarian expectations to many people's fears at the time. The sect of Matthias had more than its share of the political drama, the sexual confusions and threats, and the reconceptions of social order that characterized all such movements. On his departmental website biography, Sean speaks of the study getting at, quote, the darker corners of the 19th century religious revival known as the Second Great Awakening. When I first heard Sean talk formally about the project, long before it was published, I was mesmerized. When I learned how, in strange ways, elegantly and perceptively explicated by Sean, this sect had influenced Sojourner Truth, the great black activist, I was taken aback. So what of those wide interests that C. Van Woodward so lauded? Sean's biggest book is The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, which appeared in 2005. So big is it that in one version it was republished as three books. <laughs> it was awarded the Bancroft Prize, the, pre the premier prize in American history, and was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. To go from the late 18th century in American history down to the Civil War is impressive. But Sean followed the rise of American democracy with the age of Reagan, a history 1974 to 2008, which won the admiration even of political ideologues who desperately wanted to hate it, but actually found it even-handed and insightful. In a sense, the Reagan book points us to another dimension of Sean Lentz's career. He is, in fact, a public intellectual, a commentator on the modern political scene, a gadfly in the Socratic sense of the term, a man who forces us to look our history and our prejudices in the face. His opinions are expressed regularly in the New Republic and in commentary written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Review of Books, and the London Review of Books, among other major publications. He also makes his opinions known when called upon on Capitol Hill, as he did when he spoke out vigorously against the impeachment of President Clinton, a stand that infuriated ideological conservatives and moral rigorists and put them on their guard when the Reagan book later appeared. <laughs> Finally, and this, my thunder has been stolen by the remarks of the president of the university, <laughs> Sean has had a career as a booster of Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan's music. True, this fascination of Sean's is embedded in a broader interest in modern American musical culture, but one does not become the official historian, or rather the historian in residence, of the Bob Dylan website because one just likes a good beat or some striking lyrics. One does not craft album notes on a Bob Dylan CD worthy of a Grammy nomination, that is the album notes, because one merely enjoys a good song or two. It is because, if I may say so, one is a Bob Dylan fanatic. <laughs> now the culmination for now, but certainly I, I suppose not the end of Sean's fascination with Bob Dylan and his oeuvre, is his Bob Dylan in America, which appeared in 2010. The awards accorded Sean in the course of his career, a Guggenheim Fellowship, an ACLS Ford Fellowship, and on and on, are all well-deserved. 
I'm delighted to have Sean Wilentz, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History, a much honored scholar, far beyond what I've mentioned, a wide-ranging intellectual, a congenial colleague, and a quintessential Bob Dylan fan, <laughs> talk to us this afternoon on the long and tragical history of post-partisanship. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in showing our appreciation. Thank you very much. Um, wow. First of all, I want to thank President Tillman. Um, this is as high, about as high an intellectual honor as the president of this university can bestow, and therefore the president of any university can bestow. <laughs> so I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, as for Bill, that was really nice, and uh, I thank you very much for it. I didn't know that story about C. Van Woodward, and uh, that kind of makes my year, and the year's almost over. <laughs> Um, well, welcome everybody. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to see you all. Um, three little preliminaries before I, I get going. First of all, um, Bill was um, extremely um, kind in mentioning all these things that I've done, but is there something that he didn't mention? Well, I, um, I'll forgo the temptation to say that I, I'm also a former Speaker of the House of Representatives. <laughs> I mean, you know, my contribution to politics is about on a par with his contribution to scholarship. <laughs> Secondly, um, as, as Bill mentioned, I write different kinds of history, and I write about politics, or I sometimes in politics, um, I write history, and sometimes I write political history. And what you're going to hear this afternoon is that. And I hope it's an example of how you can actually write about political history without not having the politics infect your history, but have them inform your history. I'll let you be the judge of that, but that's what I'm attempting to do. The third thing is that I, I, I'm, I'm trying to use this opportunity to speak to other lectures in the series, to have my lecture actually reflect on one of my, some of my predecessors have talked about over the last 10 years. In particular, a lecture that was given exactly a year ago by Nolan McCarty. Um, if you were lucky enough to be here for that lecture, you would have heard Nolan talk about the myth of, 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 of bipartisanship, the myth of American politics without polarization. Um, some of us go around with the idea that American politics in the good old days was a matter where hotly contested issues, forced Democrats and Republicans to go out at hammer and tongue during the daytime, and then they'd have a bourbon afterwards and everybody would be friendly. That's been true as far as I can make out for about six years of American history. <laughs> Three years between 1816 and 1819, sometimes referred to as the era of good feelings. <laughs> I, I always point out to my students that three years doth not an era make. <laughs> and perhaps the second Eisenhower administration. Those are the two periods in which that's been the case, and I think Nolan made a very, very strong case for that exactly a year ago. Well, this lecture rather builds on that in talking about the, the tradition of post-partisanship that I think, it's a word we've heard a lot lately, that I think actually goes back pretty far in American history. Indeed, the American dream of politics without conflict and if politics without political parties 
has a history as old as American politics. Anyone carried along on the political currents since 2008, however, might be forgiven for being led to imagine that the dream is something new and that a transformative era was finally at hand in which an entrenched politics of intense partisan conflict based on misunderstanding, miscommunication, and misanthropy would be undone. After the presidency of George W. Bush, one of the most partisan administrations in our history, candidate Barack Obama promised a new era of post-partisanship. He had arrived on the national stage, after all, with his famous 2004 speech at the Democratic National Convention, proclaiming that this was, there was, quote, not a liberal America and a conservative America, there's the United States of America. As president, Obama would reach across the aisle, listen to the Republicans, credit their good ideas. He would demonstrate that the division between the parties was exaggerated, if not false, as many Americans, above all younger voters, above all my students, fervently believed. Hot-tempered partisanship would give way to healing, temperate leadership inspired by the president's own eloquence, rational policies, and good faith. And yet, after his first year in office, the Gallup poll registered that President Obama was the most polarizing president after his first year in its recorded history. After Obama's second year, Gallup found that he was the most polarizing in his second year. <laughs> the parties were more divided and partisanship more virulent than ever. And subsequent debates over, among other issues, extending the Bush tax cuts and raising the nation's debt ceiling have affirmed and deepened the partisan divide as never before. Now, there are lots of reasons for this, not least the radical transformation of the Republican Party over the last 40 years. Clearly, though, the promise that parties and partisanship would soon diminish, let alone vanish, was an illusion. That illusion was nurtured by wishfulness and by hype, but it also sprang from ignorance about the origins of this strain of American political history, the politics of post-partisanship, a politics that arose in different ways under different names at various points in the 19th century and dates back to the nation's founding. Sometimes those politics have been a tactical ruse meant to discredit an opposing party. We're nonpartisan, you guys are the bad partisans. Right? Always, they have misdefined partisanship as the negation of principle, the vulgar and corrupt practice of miscreants who place the party's good ahead of the public good. Extreme post-partisans have favored the abolition of political parties. More often, partisanship's antagonists have tried to minimize the party's power and influence in the name of intelligent, enlightened, efficient, virtuous, and rational government. The rage for a modern post-partisanship has shared many features with its unfortunate predecessors. It's also ignored the historical reality that partisanship, although often manipulated and abused and often enough unprincipled, has, has also been an effective vehicle for democratic, and social, for democratic social and political reform. Okay, now we're going back to the way old days. Historians are well aware of the persistence of an antagonism to political parties that ran deep in Anglo-American political culture through the era of the American Revolution. Yet, yet, yet this does not mean that early America was an idol of politics free from parties. Party intrigues, factional intrigues and battles, including sophisticated electioneering techniques, appeared throughout the colonies. In America, as in Britain, 
anti-party statements as often as not amounted to cant. Appeals by partisan writers and political leaders, Richard Hofstadter observed, to a general distrust of the idea of party. And such anti-party partisanship lay behind the most important anti-party statement of the early American Republic. President George Washington's farewell address of 1796, I told you we're going back to the way old days, would prove the locus classicus of American anti-party thought. But its historical context suggests a more political story. In 1792, pushed by the controversies in the first Congress over Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton's fiscal proposals, James Madison, Princeton's own, the head of the congressional opposition published several anonymous and highly partisan newspaper essays, which sliced through anti-party conceits. Two parties being natural to most political societies now existed in America, Madison wrote, an anti-Republican party aligned with the rich and influential, and his own Republican Party, which represented the great majority but was out of power due to the wealth and stratagems of its opponents. <laughs> Madison could not tell which party would ultimately prevail, but he was reasonably confident that the conflict would not end anytime soon. The ensuing four years saw the creation of political machinery dedicated to electing former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson to the presidency. Beginning in 1795, Washington dropped hints that he would not accept re-election. Washington alerted his anointed successor, John Adams, but only publicly revealed his decision in September 1796 with his farewell address. Thus, the famous address, commonly viewed as an Olympian statement about uniting in the national cause, was in fact deeply political. A signal, the ultra-conservative Federalist leader Fisher Ames called it, like dropping a hat for the party racers to start. Washington's address never explicitly mentioned Jefferson or his supporters, but its unvarnished attack on organized political opposition was plainly directed against them. As if replying directly to Madison, Washington stated that parties were not natural but artificial and intolerable, a fatal tendency and wholly illegitimate, led by artful and enterprising men. Parties, Washington contended, upset the natural harmony of interests of an organic, well-ordered society. In America, reasoned deliberation by elected authorities inevitably produced at least an agreeable concord, if not perfect unanimity. Public political clamor between elections exceeded the letter of the Constitution and vitiated its spirit by artificially upsetting that harmony. Uh, upsetting that harmony. Supporting the Jeffersonian opposition, by implication, verged on breaking the law. Jefferson lost by a whisker in 1796, but his narrow victory in 1800-1801 marked a stunning defeat for the organic anti-partisan conception of politics. Yet the anti-party animus did not suddenly evaporate. Jefferson's famous intentionally misleading post-partisan appeal in his inaugural address, he addressed the country and said, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, was a ploy designed by Jefferson to conquer his opponents by dividing them. But it hardly deceived the Federalists. Some of them remained explicitly anti-partisan and expected that the bewitched electorate would come to its senses under Jeffersonian misrule. Other Federalists, though, abandoned the idea that organized politics should cease between elections, and they seemed to change their mind, actually, about partisanship. They created their own caucuses, their own county and ward committees, and their own party newspapers, including in 1802 Alexander Hamilton's New York Evening Post. 
You did not see Rupert Murdoch coming down the pike. <laughs> but there it was. They also employed the major majoritarian vocabulary of democratic politics. We must court popular favor, Fisher Ames explained in 1801. Yet closer, on closer inspection, the Federalists' new majoritarianism merely inverted Jeffersonian rhetoric and rehashed the patrician anti-partisanship in, in, in Washington's farewell address. The Jeffersonians' supposed democracy, the Federalists argued, was really an aristocracy of self-serving partisan adventurers imposed on honest farmers, merchants, and the rest of the decent majority. The worst thing about politics, the Federalists contended, were partisan politicians. This will sound familiar. Described by one New Hampshire newspaper as, quote, office holders, office seekers, pimps. <laughs> I'm going to say that again because there was a cough. Office holders, office seekers, pimps. <laughs> this host of worse than, worse than Egyptian locusts now preying upon the very vitals of the public who must starve or steal or cheat. They were referring, of course, to the grubby Jeffersonian Republicans. The Federalists never overcame the elitist monocratic reputation fixed on them by the Jeffersonians in the 1790s, and they fitfully sank into oblivion after 1801. The shoe now is on the other foot, and many Republican leaders sounded as if suddenly they'd seen the light and thought that political parties were anathema. Equally gratifying is it to witness the increased harmony of opinion which pervades our union, President James Monroe famously declared in his first inaugural in 1817. Eight years later, Monroe's successor, John Quincy Adams, remarked happily that the country had uprooted, quote, the baneful weed of party strife. Still, many Jeffersonians suspected that the new harmony was a dangerous delusion. Jefferson himself, who said contradictory things about parties during his presidency as it served his purposes, which was the way Jefferson operated, eventually settled down to the idea that, as he told Lafayette in 1823, in truth, the parties of Whig and Tory which is to say Federalist and uh, Republican, are those of nature. Redrawing the old party lines between Federalist and Jeffersonian became the chief object of Martin Van Buren and the Neo-Jeffersonians who designed and built the Jacksonian Democratic Party in the late 1820s. This is where historians sometimes date the beginning of modern American politics or political parties. The Jacksonians designed for a national party um, which was to be a disciplined, quasi-military organization that demanded the subordination of personal views and interests for the good of the whole, was far more sophisticated, comprehensive, and democratic than the Jeffersonians had been. Yet there were also some remarkable similarities. Above all, the Jacksonian partisans believed that conflict, and not consensus, was the natural order of politics, a fundamental, a fundamental Madisonian idea and that the many needed the party as a political vehicle to prevent what Van Buren called, quote, the establishment of a moneyed oligarchy, the most selfish and monopolizing of all depositories of political power. He was not at Zuccotti Park, <laughs> but that was Martin Van Buren. Even more striking was how the Jacksonians' opponents recycled the anti-party, anti-politician arguments of an earlier day. Whig party spokesmen cited Washington's farewell address as if it was holy writ. They praised Monroe's presidency as, quote, one period of comparative repose when all parties were apparently blended in a common mass. They attacked the Jacksonians as the Federalists had attacked the Jeffersonians, as the progenitors of a new aristocracy of corrupt politicians and who used patronage to bribe loyalty out of men at every level of society. Quote, from the president, to the chiefs of office under him, 
from them to his subordinates and from the subordinates to their shoe blacks, one Whig Party um, newspaper declared. In place of the selfish few, the Whigs would substitute natural aristocrats of arduous attainment who were free from the imperative to express the will of the party, whether it be their own individual will or not. As one writer for the American Whig Review put it, quote, intelligence and virtue must also, as a matter of fact, maintain the controlling interest in spite of universal suffrage. This elitist tone never completely disappeared from the Whigs' appeals, but as long as it did, younger uh, Whig leaders like Thurlow Whedon of New York in 1834 remarked that the Whigs were doomed, quote, to fight merely to be beaten. The Whigs needed to learn the political lessons of the Federalists' failure, and so a more hard-headed cadre of new school Whigs in the late 1830s and 1840s, including in Illinois, a young Abraham Lincoln, built local, state, and national party organizations, and donned and mounted down-home election trappings in the Whigs' triumphant log cabin campaign in 1840. As the Whigs made their peace with partisanship, as the Federalists never quite did, the anti-party impetus turned up more emphatically elsewhere on the political scene. Northern nativists attacked political parties as evil instruments to mobilize alien Roman Catholics for the subversion of the Republic. Radical abolitionists led by William Lloyd Garrison and committed to moral suasion instead of political campaigning berated party politics as hopelessly immoral. After the Whig Party collapsed due to sectional antagonisms in the mid-1850s, nativism briefly flared as a national anti-party party, if you can believe that, only to be itself overwhelmed by the crisis over slavery. Instead, there arose the anti-slavery Republican Party, which was very, very much a political party, led by Abraham Lincoln, who by now was a consummate party leader. A more elaborate version of anti-party politics in the 1830s and 1840s emerged from the opposite pole from Garrisonian abolitionism. John C. Calhoun had risen to national office by mastering the peculiar political culture of South Carolina, guided by an older aristocratic style of managing disagreements. The emergence of, of Northern Party spoils men like Van Buren, these are men who supposedly hungered for the spoils of office, disgusted John C. Calhoun. But party democracy loomed more dangerously in the 1830s and after when Calhoun turned to defending slavery and developing his theory of the concurrent majority. That doctrine, which assured that national political minorities could thwart the will of the majority, would prevent a national party controlled by anti-slavery northerners from destroying the South's peculiar institution. But it's important to see that Calhoun's theory of the, of the concurrent majority turned on his contempt as well as his fear of political parties and patronage. Calhoun saw the parties as the instruments for northern spoilsmen to enhance federal power and attack slavery head on. He also feared that demagogic party leaders would create artificial conflicts that would sunder the social fabric and that the ensuing turmoil would ruin slavery. The check of a concurrent majority would stifle party formation. Quote, instead of faction, strife, and struggle, he wrote, there would be patriotism, nationality, harmony, and a struggle only for supremacy in promoting the common good of the whole. By 1860, the, partisan, the principled partisanship of the Republican Party elected Lincoln to the White House, which sparked Southern secession, and we all know what happened then. In the South, Calhoun's reformulation of the idea of politics without parties 
became one of the cornerstones of the Confederate States of America. The most elaborate attempt at consensual, partyless government in all of American history. The Confederacy chiefly stood, of course, for what its vice president, Alexander Hamilton Stevens, called the great truth that slavery was the natural and normal condition for inferior blacks. But the Confederacy's architects also disdained partisanship and particularly party politics. Even before 1860, the Jacksonian and Whig parties had struck shallower roots in the South than in the North, for reasons I can go into in questions. To say the least, the Southern Quarterly Review talked about how uh, Southerners would elect men of independent judgment who stood away from what the, the, the Review called the degrading livery of party. The Confederate Constitutional Convention, which met in Montgomery, Alabama in February 1861, backed the anti-party fervor with the force of law, limiting the Confederate presidency to a single six-year term with no possibility for re-election, thereby curtailing electioneering as well as democratic accountability. The Confederacy also shifted a good deal of the appropriation power from the Congress to the presidency to help reduce corruption, they thought. Curbing party domination, Robert H. Smith of Alabama argued, would help prevent the Confederacy from degenerating into something, quote, much worse than a pure democracy, a mere oligarchy, and that not of intelligence and virtue, but of low ambition. Yet, post-partisan purification bred political torpor and finally, political chaos. There are very few history books, very few articles, very few anything written about the history of Confederate elections, precisely because absent party organizations and with so much of the voting, voting age male population in uniform, they were exceedingly desultory affairs. In a sham election without a campaign or opposition in November 1861, Southern voters dutifully ratified the provisional government's selection of Jefferson Davis, who had already been president for 10 months, along with the sitting vice president, Alexander Stevens. You know, think, think the Soviet Union, <laughs> think about 1953, and you've got what these elections were like. Not in any other way, but just the elections. The, la the lack of parties also severely harmed the operation of the Confederate government. With no clear party lines to demarcate friends and adversaries, President Davis had great difficulty assembling a cabinet that was loyal to him in the least, let alone stable. Due to chronic resignations, the Confederate States of America had, now this, this thing lasted four years, right? They had five secretaries of state, four attorneys general, and three, three secretaries, so, sorry, five secretaries of war, four attorneys general, and three secretaries of state. Opposition to Davis had no partisan focus, which led to crises of legitimacy whenever states' rights purists, especially governors, refused to comply with directives from Richmond. After Appomattox, Southern apologists turned the disarray of Confederate politics into a ready excuse for the rebellion's defeat. They blamed it all on the partisans. Yet the, the, the enlistment of anti-partisanship as an element of the Southern lost cause myth was not the largest irony in the history of anti-party politics to emerge out of the Civil War. Barely a decade after the Confederacy arose, the post-partisan principles of Washington's farewell address revived once more, now by upper-class Northern reformers based largely in the Republican Party. See, this comes from every angle. No serious reform of the nation's ills would occur, Henry Adams wrote in 1876, 
until, quote, they are attacked at their source, Democrats and Republicans who had corrupted government, quote, for the purposes of party aggrandizement. Beginning at the end of the 1860s and over the succeeding quarter century, those elite reformers formed a loosely knit group that operated under different names, liberals, educated men, liberal Republicans, mugwumps. I'll explain later what, where they got that term from, if you'd like. Stalwart anti-slavery Republicans during the war, they gravitated thereafter to a cluster of beliefs identified with classical liberalism. Laissez-faire government and free trade headed the list. They led the demarche of respectable northern opinion away from Reconstruction, upholding the political claims of the responsible white south. Professing disgust at the scandals of the Grant years, real, imagined, and exaggerated, they seized upon corruption and spoilsmanship as the cardinal sins of the age and pushed hard for civil service reform. They feared that the vast growth of mass immigration from Central and Southern Europe would strengthen party rule and what E.L. Godkin's The Nation called, quote, the severance of political power from intelligence and property. But anti-immigration efforts achieved little compared to what happened in the South where disfranchisement of blacks and of poor whites actually succeeded. That didn't work out in the North, and neither did anti-immigration efforts. So the Northern reformers pressed all the harder to restrict party politics and government. Some extreme anti-party um, liberals dwelled in a political netherworld, and they called for the complete extirpation of political parties. More practical reformers tried to hem in the exact existing parties and their backroom machinations. A reform movement cannot succeed which starts off under the, the auspices of trading politicians, said the liberal Republican Lyman Trumbull in 1872. After Horace Greeley's disastrous run on the re liberal Republican ticket in 1872 again, the reformers favored a stance of independency within the major parties. They would stay within the parties but apply pressure and establish themselves as a kind of balance of power in politics and government. Henry Adams called them a party of the center. They scored their greatest triumph in national electoral politics in 1884 when defections of the so-called mugwumps from the Republican Party, from the Republican presidential candidate, the spoilsman James G. Blaine, appeared to tip the contest in favor of the conservative Democrat Grover Cleveland, another man identified with Princeton. So Cleveland had the benefit of the mugwumps. Mugwumpery, though, would prove the electoral zenith of, el of elite independent liberalism. By the mid-1890s, the anti-party reform impulses had slowed. Powerful concerns about the parties and the purity of government did persist, especially at the state level. But national politics began to focus on the bewildering dynamics and injustices of a new industrial era. Still, the elite liberal reformers' new independent style had an enormous impact, not simply on the course of anti-party politics, but on the place of those politics in American life. Okay, so I've gotten you to the 20th century. Now, to get from there to now would take five more lectures. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be very, very compressed. I'm going to give you a sprint to today. So stop me if I'm going too fast. Somebody wave your arms if I start <laughs> going too fast. Even a quick sketch, though, that I'm going to try to provide shows how persistent these politics are. The first national leader of a prog of progressive era reform was an erstwhile elite liberal reformer from New York City, Theodore Roosevelt. In 1884, the young New York assemblyman fought James G. Blaine's nomination. He was 
going to be one of the mugwumps. But then he backed off after Blaine got the nomination, and he stayed with his party. He, in fact, decried the mugwumps' high-minded indifference to party. He would later call the mugwumps dangerous elitists who, quote, distrusted the average citizen and shuddered over the coarseness of professional politicians. As President Roosevelt rejected the laissez-faire dogma of the liberals and looked back instead to the democratic nationalism of the Lincoln and Grant era for inspiration. In pursuing his agenda, TRCs not upon anti-party anti reform, but the exercise of presidential might. He was also a shrewd and at times merciless party commander. And if you have any doubts about that, ask the um, state chairman, we well, could have asked the state chairman of any number of Republican parties at the time. Outside of the major parties, meanwhile, alternative crusades arose. Efforts to weaken the party system in the name of direct democracy gained popular support for reforms, some of which were quite commendable, including the direct election of senators and presidential primary contests, as well as, you know, I'm not so sure, initiative, referendum, and recall. Partisan newspapers fell into disfavor. The flood tide of this renewed anti-party politics was the Progressive Party campaign in 1912, which ran the now embittered, schismatic ex-president Theodore Roosevelt at the top of its ticket. An effort that, in one historian's words, was as much, quote, an attack on the whole concept of political parties as it was an effort to create a single party that would represent the true interest of the nation as a whole, unquote. Now, TR. Theodore Roosevelt's embrace of and nomination by the anti-party progressive party, the party to end all political parties, was one of those ironies that makes American political history so delicious. <laughs> Having succeeded to the presidency in 1901 and run in 1904 as a thoroughgoing partisan, Roosevelt's anger at his hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft's supposed betrayal of reformism, transformed Roosevelt into his opposing image in an attempt to wrest back power. TR's unsuccessful third party run in 1912 actually corroborated his more considered party alignments, paving the way, I would argue, for the capture of the GOP by the conservative elements that would lay the groundwork for the Great Depression. It would take a Democrat whom Roosevelt despised, President Woodrow Wilson, to secure some of the reforms supported by the Bull Moose progressives in 1912, including votes for women. Wilson, who became a, an equally skilled partisan politician, began as a theorist as well as a practitioner of what became known as responsible party politics and government. Efforts to provide nonpartisan government, he remarked, quote, always in the long run fail. Progressivism in all its varieties had run its course by 1920 when the anti-TR old guard Republicans regained the White House. Yet the president who best embodied progressive values of efficiency and expertise reached office nearly a decade later. The greatest progressive president or the most progressive president we've ever had, the Republican Herbert Hoover, who owed no virtually nothing to party politics, having risen to prominence as Secretary of Commerce under Harding and Coolidge. Hoover championed the so-called efficiency movement um, of the time, which held that nonpartisan professional experts were best positioned to eliminate the waste and fraud that supposedly were ruining American government and business. Hoover's election was heralded as a transcendence of the bad partisan politics, one that would bring a golden age of permanent prosperity. 
This, of course, was not to be. But only after the voters rejected him in 1932 did Hoover become the indelible symbol of old guard Republican Party partisanship and dogmatism. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a skilled party leader who was as, as at home with James A. Farley, the quintessential machine Paul, as he was with Rexford Tugwell, the Columbia University professor who exemplified the bright young men he recruited into his brains trust. Even before he reached the White House, FDR had won the affection of New York Democrats for carrying the entire party with him come election day. One Brooklyn district leader named Jaime Shorenstein explained to local government candidates why he was sending all of his money to Roosevelt, who was running for governor, rather than to them. They wanted the money. Why are you giving it all to Roosevelt, who's at the top of the ticket? He asked them if they'd ever seen the Staten Island Ferry sailing into its slip, never alone but dragging in, quote, quote all the crap in the harbor behind it. <laughs> Shorenstein paused for his punchline. FDR is our Staten Island Ferry. <laughs> Roosevelt did attempt to remake the Democratic Party into a bastion of what he called militant liberalism in his famous effort to purge the party of its hidebound conservatives, particularly in the Jim Crow South, which began in earnest in 1938. The effort largely failed. Yet Roosevelt's intention was not to destroy his party or party government, but to sharpen the ideological divide between the parties. And something like that sharpening eventually occurred in the 1960s although it brought political results very different from those that Roosevelt had anticipated. The New Deal Party coalition remained so powerful for so long that it appeared to have led to a new bipartisan consensus in the mid-1950s, an end of ideology. Here was the acme, I think, probably in all of American history, of moderate non-polarized government. President Dwight David Eisenhower's modern republicanism with his acceptance of many New Deal programs and ideas that conservative Republicans had fought against tooth and nail, encouraged the presumption that the nation had entered a new and permanent era of good feelings. Yet, this first, like, yet like the first era of good feelings, this one lasted for just a few years, roughly from the censure of Senator Joseph McCarthy in 1954 to the election of John F. Kennedy in 1960. And bubbling just beneath the calm and sometimes breaking to the surface, were the volatile political elements that would define the 1960s. The civil rights movement first and foremost, but also the sharp reaction against modern republicanism that would produce the political candidacy of Barry Goldwater. The turbulence of the 1960s and 1970s did not destroy the political parties, but it did shatter the parties as the nation had come to know them. John F. Kennedy, like Lyndon B. Johnson, was hardly a nonpartisan or antipartisan president. Yet, his cultivation of the so, um, despite his cultivation of the so-called best and the brightest. But Kennedy's and then Johnson's embrace of civil rights eventually sent an already discontented conservative white South firmly into the Republican Party. Johnson's pursuit of the Vietnam War then opened up new divisions inside the Democratic Party, not just between hawks and doves, but between party regulars and so-called new politics reformers who echoed in many ways the affluent anti-party reformers of a, of a century earlier. Those splits helped make Richard M. Nixon president. See, I'm getting here. I'm almost there. <laughs> a figure of partisanship above principle. 
who after a moment of posing as an American Disraeli, set about trying to remake not just his party, but the government as a whole in the image of what he called the new American majority, exploiting racial turmoil and resentments and concentrating power as never before in the executive with a strident political agenda. Now the leader of the Republican Party, he attempted to remake the party in its own image, in his own image, and under his iron control. Watergate, and he, he as much as talks about this in his, in his memoirs. Watergate, the pursuit of Nixonian partisanship by any means necessary, destroyed Nixon and with him his meta-partisan plan. It also blew a hole in the center of the Republican Party, which in time allowed the party, party's Goldwater wing to take over the GOP under the aegis of Ronald Reagan. In response to Nixon's crimes, the Democrats selected for the presidency a details-oriented engineer in the Southern anti-party progressive tradition, Jimmy Carter, who promoted himself as a moral man who would never lie, who would end politics as usual, and who would rely on brains, virtue, and talent. Why not the best? He was, in a way, the Democrats' version of the progressive ideal, their own Herbert Hoover although the similarities never crossed their minds. <laughs> Carter's failure, sealed in part by his vexed relation with partisan Democrats in Congress, paved the way for, for Reagan's admixture of a conventionally partisan, ideologically extreme, and peculiarly pragmatic administration, one which unevenly advanced the new conservatives' quest to push the sum and substance of the, of the federal government far to the right. <laughs> Democrats countered by flailing about for a decade, first attempting to revive the spirit of the New Deal liberalism with Walter Mondale, Carter's vice president, then returning to neo-progressive expertise with Michael Dukakis, who in his most famous statement declared, this election isn't about ideology, it's about competence. At last, the Democrats found success with Bill Clinton, a new sort of partisan Democrat who tried to rebuild the party and relieve it of its accumulated political handicaps, but then ran into some handicaps of his own. Since 1980, there have been three third-party campaigns more or less in line with the anti-party tradition. The moderate Republican John Anderson's run in 1980, perceived as a high-minded, moderate option for Republicans alienated by Reagan conservatism and liberals offended by what they saw as Carter's creeping conservatism. The eccentric entrepreneur Ross Perot's self-funded campaign in 1992, pitched as a chance, you'll remember, not just to lower the deficit, but to substitute a hard-headed, commonsensical businessman in favor of the corrupt political professionals. And the modern muckraker Ralph Nader's left-wing anti-corporate Green Party campaign in 2000, dedicated to the proposition that there wasn't a dime's bit of difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. Interesting, the last person who would come up with that line came up with it, came up with it in 1968, and his name was George Wallace. All three of these candidacies supposedly heralded yet another fresh start for American politics after the events of the late 1960s and 1970s had loosened voters' attachments to the major parties. An era, and the term was now gaining currency, of post-partisanship. In all three cases, anti-party candidacies did nothing to prevent the election of partisan administrations, including the radically partisan White House of the younger Bush. Indeed, Nader's run ensured Bush's presidency. The Bush presidency brought its own post-partisan ironies, although in retrospect, they were superficial. Bush ran in 2000 under the theme, you'll remember, of compassionate conservatism and promised to be a uniter, not a divider. 
building on his father's pledge for a kinder, gentler America, while trying to blame the acidic partisanship of the Gingrich delay Republicans on both political parties. That was, that was the handicap that Bill Clinton ran into, the Gingrich delay Republicans, promising that, they would, that he would change the tone in Washington. It was a transparent campaign tactic, although the Democrats did a poor job of saying as much. Then, from the start, Bush's administration was marked by efforts to turn events, including and maybe especially the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, to, to uh, forging what Bush's architect, his chief political strategist Karl Rove, believed would be a permanent Republican Party majority, the fulfillment of Nixon's partisan dream. After eight years of George Bush, much as after almost six years of Nixon, American voters were not surprisingly receptive to anti-partisan or post-partisan appeals to a Democrat who said he wanted to put aside divisive rhetoric and divided government. Commentators naturally focused on the racial aspects of Barack Obama's successful candidacy. Yet Obama broke the mold in another crucial way, as one of, only, uh, as one of the only presidents in modern times, Jimmy Carter is the other example, who explicitly and sincerely ran for office promising not simply to unite the country, but to get beyond partisanship, to offer a spirit of thoughtfulness, expertise, and integrity that rose above party indeed rose above politics. As it happens, though, the post-partisanship the post we heard so much about in 2008 and 2009 was an updated version of some very old themes in our politics, a current that connects George Washington to E.L. Godkin, James Adams' Federalists to Grover Cleveland's Mugwumps, James Monroe to John Quincy Adams, and Adams to his grandson Henry Adams, and Bizarrely enough, the first African-American president to John C. Calhoun and the Confederate fire eaters. <laughs> what all these earlier leaders, parties, and factions shared, in marked contrast with Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, Theodore Roosevelt, before and after 1912, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin D. Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton, was an antipathy to partisanship that either failed to prevent the rise of parties or to dislodge them from their central place in American political life. More important, that antipathy invariably ensured ultimate political defeat, no matter whether the cause was being advanced from the right or from the left. The anti, or from the center for that matter. The anti-party current is practically by definition anti-democratic, anti as political parties with all of their flaws and all of their corruption have been the most reliable vehicles for advancing the ideas and interests of ordinary voters. Not the only instruments, but essential instruments. Today's Tea Party activists, for all of their proclaimed alienation with both major parties, understand as much. They're not whining about the evils of partisanship. They are working it and using the party system to advance their hard right agenda as a wing of the Republican Party. Whenever political leaders have presumed that their expertise and background make them repositories of rationality and wisdom that place them above the wheeling and dealing and spoilsmanship of democratic politics, the result has been a fatal disconnection between themselves and the citizenry. And not just the citizenry, for without the trust and continuing cooperation born of strong party loyalties, it has been impossible for presidents to work closely with Congress and to enact legislation or to construct an effective executive branch. Coming to the end here, 
We're almost going to get to, to yesterday. <laughs> President Kennedy is sometimes cited as an anti-partisan who held party hacks in disdain. But Kennedy actually relished being his party's chieftain and astutely understood the imperatives of party and party leadership, which he examined, which he explained rather, as well as anyone has. Quote, no president, it seems to me, can escape politics, Kennedy observed in 1960 as he began his quest for the Democratic presidential nomination. He has not only been chosen by the nation, he has been chosen by his party. And if he insists that he is president of all the people and should therefore offer none of them, if he offend, sorry, and, and, and should therefore offend none of them, if he blurs the issues and differences between the parties, if he neglects the party machinery and avoids his party's leadership, then he has not only weakened the political party as an instrument of the democratic process, he has dealt a blow to the democratic process itself. Kennedy went on to say that he preferred the example of Abraham Lincoln, quote, who loved politics with the passion of a born practitioner. So to yesterday, in one paragraph, because I'm running out of time and it's getting me off the hook. <laughs> but we'll have time for questions afterwards. What distinguishes Obama, like President, uh, President Carter, is that he has operated in an era where, paradoxically, party ties among the voters have supposedly weakened, but the parties themselves have become bitterly ideological. Carter became president in an earlier part of this cycle than it, um, that has become more intensely paralyzed under Obama than at any time since the Civil War. And yet, there was an attempt to try and seize the middle ground to find the independence um, 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 as, as the key to political success, um, which did not exactly work out, certainly in terms of the Bush tax cuts and certainly in terms of the debt ceiling debate. So as grievous as the current tone and substance of our politics has become, there is no reason to believe that post-partisanship, by whatever name you choose to call it, has proved or will prove to be any less tragical than ever. Thank you. So I feel, uh, go ahead, you're the president, go ahead. Professor Willans is happy to answer questions and I suspect this talk has elicited some. Who would like to begin? Sir. Is there any political element that you perceive might come out of Occupy Wall Street? Oh, Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, they, they have set themselves against any kind, you know, they're, they're what should we say? They're nonpartisan. They don't want to be, got, be involved in party politics, not because they, they don't, they just don't trust either party. So in a sense, that's, that's what, just what I've been talking about. Um, so I'm not so sure that the Occupy Wall Street movement's ever going to be, you know, at the seat of the table, you know, at, at the table in the White House, for example, or have real political power. However, I think it's had an extraordinary effect on the atmospherics of politics. I mean, it's more political theater than anything else, um, but, it's, but you can have very effective political theater. And I think it's been very effective political theater up to this point. Um, you know, there's no question that the, you know, just the coverage in the New York Times of the kinds of issues that are facing the American people these days have changed. And it's all because of them. Um, no one else was doing it. 
particularly effectively. I mean, some professors were doing some stuff, but, but they really, they really you know, seized, seized the moment. So, so I think they had a tremendous effect, and who knows where that's going to go. And then they're not done. I mean, you know, they're coming, they're coming to the universities. <laughs> I've noticed. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, it's, it's very volatile, but, but, but in effect, no one, I mean, it, it speaks to both the successes, but also the failures of the current administration, it seems to me. Um, to break through and um, the frustration with politics as it exists. A lot of people who thought that they were finally going to get involved in things in 2008 are very angry. Um, and that's what it's about, I think. But it can have a great effect. We'll see. Sir. David Brooks said a couple of days ago that the problem with America today is we have two minority parties. And hence, they're both trying to gain a majority, but they're not getting there. And that's the problem with leading a gridlock. Uh, how do you see it? Well, I mean, that's not inevitable. I mean, that may be happening right at the moment, depending on when, 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 when um, um, David Brooks was reading. I don't, I don't think that's inevitable. I think one party is going to beat the other party in 2012. And they're not going to beat, and it's not going to be with 40% of the vote. So, you know, some party is going to get a hold of, um, capture the imagination of the, of, of the, of the independents, the so-called independents. One of the problems is that people's ideas of who these independents are are pretty weird. I mean, most of them think they're all a bunch of Henry Adams types. You know, sitting back, you know, cynically judging each party. That's not who they are. I mean, independents are, you know, independents mostly, as far as I've been able to understand, um, are what we otherwise call low information voters. <laughs> High information voters are the most partisan people of all. Low information voters are like, eh. And, 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 and they're more likely to be, you know, leadership, I think, matters a great deal is what I'm saying. And what you saw with the Tea Party, in fact, was somebody was shouting and screaming and a lot of people said, okay, they sound all right. Um, I, I think that the search for the center may not be what the key if you imagine the center to be something that's in the middle and moderate. It's something else that's there. And I think that the, 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 you know, the party that decides to lead, and, you know, I mean, the Republicans are trying to lead and they're getting their 30 to 40 percent. Um, so I think that it, it is a, an enormous democratic uh, opportunity, um, but it's going to be very, very hard. Sir. What do you think of uh, the California experiment in the primaries of allowing the top two voters or vote-getters to then run in the general election? How does that fit into your partisan, post-partisan? Yeah, I mean, at the state level, that can often work much, you know, that's a, that's a similar kind of progressive reform as we've heard throughout. California has those a lot. California, no, it's not because it's California. It's because, you know, going back to all the way to the turn of the 20th century, progressivism really took off in California. And the state level, it makes a lot more sense um, because it's a smaller polity and you're dealing with a different kind of electorate. I haven't studied that particularly closely. Others over here have, so I really hesitate to talk about it specifically. But I think at the state level, it's a very, very different matter than if you're talking about the whole country. Sir. In this supposed uh, information age, do you think that we have more or fewer what you call low information voters? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's another delicious paradox of American political history. Um, I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know that we're better educated or not. I know that the, that the, the promise of, you know, of, of, of great, you know, the quality of information is not particularly good that one can get on the, on the internet. 
So it's not just a matter of the amount of information, it's the quality of information, and everybody can get niched out, and they can, those people who go to the I think that mostly it's high information loaders getting their own prejudices reinforced with what's going on on the internet, a lot. It's not the only thing that's happening, it's only, not the only thing that can happen, and I don't want to sound like a, like a Luddite, but, but I think that that's a lot of what is occurring is that. And Fox News, and you know, it's not just the internet. Um, um, but, but how much of this has led to greater political rationality or informed voters? A lot of law information voters don't want to be informed. <laughs> and then a pollster calls them up and they say, oh. There's a student way at the back. Student way in the back. Yeah, um, Amy Gutman and Dennis Thompson. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday wrote uh, an editorial in the New York Times saying that basically voters, either Washington needs to learn to compromise or voters need to elect people who will compromise. And I take it the message of your talk is quite the opposite. Yes. Yes. No, no. I mean, I, you know, I, I deeply, you know, admire and respect both my colleagues Amy and, 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 and Dennis. But no, I think, I, th I don't think that you, that the search for um, a court is going to get you very far in this political atmosphere. Not with that Republican Party. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Well, the problem is that you then need to elect a clear winner. Yes, you, you, and you will. And you will elect a clear winner. We elected, uh, there was a clear winner elected in, in 2008, wasn't there? Unfortunately, we have a sort of separation of powers. <laughs> yes, and? I, I mean, a clear winner would only be a clear winner if they control both houses of Congress. Well, you know, I mean, um, you know, a presidential leadership, you're taking the, you're taking the position that what, what happened had to happen after, to the, after the election. I mean, I don't know that it had to happen the way that it did. I don't know that 60, 60 votes had to be. Look, I'm all for cloture reform in the Senate. I know what you're talking about. But, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson had the same kinds of problems. And he knew how to knock Republicans and Democrats together to get things done. Now, it's a very different situation. I don't want to equate them. But leadership matters. And I don't want to go back and say that everything that was going to happen had to happen, particularly over the Bush tax cuts, you know, where, where there was a chance for a court coming out of the state of New York, actually, um, which might have gotten somewhere, which was jettisoned, and that Bush tax cuts were let, kept, kept going, um, and then the debt ceiling crisis, which is a disaster as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I don't think that what had happened had to happen. I'm not, a, I'm not a determinist about any of that. So I'm not so sure that we can't go in a different direction. Sir. Yeah, I mean, you know, Citizens Union is a disaster. The, 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 the Supreme Court decision was a terrible, terrible thing. Um, um, but I'm not of the mind that, that, that money can always win in politics. If money could always win in politics, no Democrat would ever be elected. <laughs> well, that's not quite true. There are some districts where they would get elected. But you know what I'm saying, okay? I mean, the, the, the politics can actually trump money, believe it or not. Yeah? Uh, well, clearly you're not a fan of postpartum. Mm -mm. Well, that's not that I'm not a fan of it. I mean, if it worked, I'd love it. Right. And in certain cases, it is good. I mean, postpartisanship did give us direct election of senators. Great. I'm in favor of that. I'm not in the Tea Party. I'm not calling for the abolition of that amendment. So I'm not of one solitary mind about that. Let me make that clear. Nor do I think that parties are always great, as, you know, to wit Richard Nixon.
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, I, first of all, let me go on record as saying that I, I really like dirty deals in back rooms. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm all for dirty deals in back rooms. You know, but that requires leadership. That's not about post-partisanship or partisanship or not. Most leaders who get anything done are highly partisan. All those presidents that I listed were highly partisan, but they knew how to deal. There's a, there's a difference between the policies of getting elected and the policies of governing. And so, sure, but, but to call it bipartisanship, you know, I mean, um, Gene Atchison once described bipartisanship as a magnificent flaw. You know, it's something we talk about, but then we practice other stuff. And it's often very dirty, and it's often very behind the back, and it's not about something that's meta bipartisanship. You don't run, you don't say, you say it to, to, to tell people that you're a nice guy, or to tell other nations that you're all reunited and so forth. But it's not a political position. It's at best a tactic. So, yeah, I mean, are you going to have to get some Republicans to support? But in this political situation, you know, time, I don't think so. So you're going to have to find a way to beat them. See, because I, I, I just don't see it. I mean, the Republican Party these days has moved very, 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 very far to the right. Right? And, 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 and the search for accord, I think, is, is, is if, you know, it's called waiting for, you know, lefty in the Republican Party. Forget it. It's like waiting for Godot. <laughs> yeah, sir. Someone up there. We might be better if we had a parliamentary system such as they have in England. Not particularly. I think one thing we should do, though, is I don't, I don't want to go into the, the one thing we could do, though. How many members are there in the House of Commons? It's a, a quiz. Six hundred. Six hundred. Okay. How many members are there in the House of Representatives? Okay. What's the population of the United States versus Britain? I think that if we doubled the size of the House, we'd actually be in better shape. This is my, <laughs> talk about my progressive reform. <laughs> this is the one thing that I've been talking about for 25 years that no one ever bothers. If you did that, you're actually, you actually could have an effect in certainly bringing the, the representatives closer to their constituencies, right? They wouldn't have to represent so many people, right? And um, it, it, it might do a lot of things. However, you'd also have to have their staffs. Double the size and half their staffs. If you can do that, they have the same staffs and there's just as many people forget it. You'll get nothing done. But if they have their staffs, you'll be in great shape. So and to that extent, I think that the, the, the British system's, you know, better. Um, um, but the other's too complicated to go into right now. Yes, sir. What happens with post-partisanship briefly on Pearl Harbor? Was there any reduction in the turn of partisan politics in the, in, during the years following the second that, there is a myth that there was, um, um, but actually my, 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 um, my um, colleague Julian Zelizer has written a very, very strong book about show, showing how, in fact, um, there was a, still a great deal of, of, of partisan wrangling going on um, you know, right through the 40s, including over foreign policy, actually. And then it's not too long. It's, I, mean, you know, I mean, Roosevelt is, is, you know, I mean, VJ Day is barely over. The picture's barely been taken. And then, you know, boom, and the Republicans are, are, are on an onslaught for the, the, the uh, campaign of 1946. Um, and, uh, and then by the time you get to the McCarthyism, you're in a whole other ballgame. So, um, you know, whatever degree of, of unity that World War II brought and did bring it um, to a certain extent, it didn't last very long. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people. Uh, Ma'am, we haven't had a woman speak for a while. Go ahead, ma'am. Yes.
Well, I mean, you're talking politically or in terms of policy. The, the, the greatest expert on health care reform is sitting in this room, so I hesitate to say a, a word about any of that <laughs> without looking deeply foolish. Um, um, you, can make a, you can make a case that politically it was a mistake to have gone for health care instead of dealing with the facts of September 15th, 2008. I mean, you know, September 15th, you know, have any, have, have any of you seen the game, the, the, the movie Margin Call yet? You know, I mean, it brings it back. Um, um, it's, it's all about what happened. It's basically Lehman Brothers, and it's showing what happened on the inside. But um, you know, there's a case to be made that 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 those that changed everything, and that by going for healthcare politically, he may have messed things up. Um, but you know, I, I don't I, I don't I'm not really sure about that. I haven't thought about that hard enough, right? Um, but but what's going to happen to healthcare is is unclear, right? I mean, it was great that he got it done. He got done what Bill Clinton couldn't get done. Yes? We read a lot about public anger at the, the amount of partisanship today. Does that have historical roots? So what were its results? Well, you know, I don't know that it's, that it's a, 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 it all depends on how these polls are, op, are, are worded. I think that people are frustrated at the inability of, of the federal government to get anything done. And so that's what they're expressing, is, 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 is a um, sort of, it becomes a pox on both their houses because nothing seems to be getting done. I also know that um, if you have a party which seems to be getting things done, as the Republicans under Ronald Reagan or the Democrats under um, FDR, all of a sudden people say, yeah, whoops, don't go that far. You know, all of a sudden that, 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 that in a, you know, if you get things done, people like you. So the question is, is it impossible to get things done in Washington these days? I'm not so sure that that's true. I don't believe, I don't think that there's a, that it's, it ain't necessarily so. Was there a similar degree of frustration historically with partisan situations? Um, well, I mean, it depends on who you're talking about, but yes, I mean, there's great frustration at the, in all the times that I spoke about. Um, there's great frustration usually among those who are losing, but not only among those who are losing. Um, um, but after 1828 or so, Right, going right through, it, right through the 19th century and even into the 20th century, there was, you know, high party identification. So people were not people were saying that they belonged to one party or another, um, and 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 turnout was very high. That all began to decline, and 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 that's another story is how party identification gets separated from people's points of view. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there are people who are frustrated, but 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 I think that right now you're seeing that, right, rather than a kind of post-partisan moment. Um, I think people are angry at the parties, but I think that could be turned around very quickly. As I say, the independent voters, and I didn't mean to make fun of them. I mean, I'm sure there are independent voters here who are pretty angry at me for what I said about what non-independent voters are like, and I, and, I, and I deeply apologize for any, nothing personal. Um, <laughs> but um, 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 it is the case that, you know, um, um, parties that lead tend to get those voters. And um, um, I don't think that people think that either party is leading ter terribly well right now. I think that's what you're seeing. But, you know, what do I know? <laughs> Ma'am. Uh, Who's this? Grover Norquist. Yes. You know, I can't. Grover? Well, Grover's very effective. 
I mean, you know, he, you know, he does, he wakes up every morning and he knows what he wants to do and he gets it done. I mean, I, so I, I, I mean, I like it. And he's been around for a long time. I mean, you know, he's like, well, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't go there. Um, he's like, you know, he just never goes away. Um, and um, he's, he's very um, clever. He's a, he's a packager of ideas out of the Reagan era. The Reagan era was very good at that. Um, Norquist, Frank Luntz was very good at that. Um, you know, they're very good at all of that. So I don't want to, you know, as, as my son says, bust on a guy because I disagree with him um, solely. Um, you know, he's good at it. Um, you know, I mean, it's vicious what's, what's come out of it. But, you know, you have the Republican Party pledge never to raise taxes. Can you imagine that? Anyway. But that, gives the, that, but that gives the other party a chance to lead, it seems to me. Yeah. We have time for one more question. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Their anger and their frustration can be harnessed by the Democratic Party mm -hmm. because at least they're speaking mm -hmm. They may have failed in the beginning, Well, sure. Sure, it's a possibility. But I mean, I don't think that, that you're going to see the President of the United States appear with a Guy Fawkes mask anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, you know, that there's going to be a distance. There's something else going on there. Um, um, but sure, I mean, I think that if, that if look, a lot of these kids, um, and I say kids, a lot of the people who were involved were, you know, out there in the streets on, on election night 2008, you know, in jubilation, okay? So you can capture their imaginations again, but they're not with things that anymore. And, 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 and you know, the, the, one of the questions that I think is interesting is, that's been raised, and I don't have an answer to it, is whether this will shift the dynamics in talking about inequality and keep it going. And that will depend not on the kids, but on the Democratic Party. Please, uh, all of us, uh, join me Thank in thanking you.